Uh, we just sang in that hymn, Amazing Grace, in verse 5. When this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. That is hope, is it not? And it's very different to something that this guy said yesterday. I don't know if you know this guy. Woody Allen is an American comedian and filmmaker. And uh, he's 74 and he's just made a new film. And it's called, um, let me get this right, You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger. What an intriguing title for a film. That is a deliberate choice of title because Woody Allen says that's got a double meaning. Normally we associate that with women who want to meet a tall, dark, handsome stranger. But the double meaning in that title is that he's referring to the Grim Reaper, another tall, dark stranger who we all have an appointment with, who will come to meet us one day and will face our own death. And this is what uh, Woody Allen said. I don't know if you saw this. This was only in the news yesterday. This whole film is meant to focus on his fear and our fear of getting older. And this is what Woody Allen says. I find it a lousy deal. There's no advantage to getting older, he says. I'm 74 now and you don't get smarter, you don't get wiser, you don't get more mellow, you don't get more kindly, nothing happens. But your back hurts more, you get more indigestion, your eyes aren't as good and you need a hearing aid. It's a bad business getting older and I would advise you not to do it if you can afford if you can avoid it. Afford it? Avoid it. Throughout this film, the, the, the characters in the film are faced with decisions about their lives. And the, the, listen to this. Woody Allen says this very profound. You must have your own delusions to live life. If you look at life too honestly and too clearly... Life does become unbearable because it's a pretty grim enterprise. This is my perspective and has always been my perspective on life. I have a very grim and pessimistic view of it. I do feel that it is grim, painful, nightmarish, meaningless experience and that the only way that you can be happy is if you tell yourself some lies and deceive yourself. That's what he said to the press. I think that was yesterday at the Cannes Film Festival. That's shocking, isn't it? Very profound. Life is grim, painful, nightmarish and meaningless experience. I don't think Peter would agree with that. And um, what, what Woody Allen is describing there is maybe the honest experience of many people. It is like a living death. You're alive, but really dying. And hopeless, really. What is life all about? No idea. I want to suggest to you, I want to do more than suggest to you, preachers uh, are to declare to you that the Bible has answers to this. And they're right here in 1 Peter. Uh, listen to what Peter says there in those first few verses. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How different that is to Woody Allen's sentiment. Jesus Christ himself said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. 
the Bible is all about facing reality. It doesn't kind of ignore reality. This chapter speaks about facing difficulties and the place of difficulties. Uh, Christians don't put their head in the sand. In, in the sand. But here we see that the Bible has answers to this very real question. How can we live in this world and know hope and joy and love? Uh, that's, a, that's a very important question. We're coming to uh, verses 10 and 12 then. This is number 3 uh, in our little series. And we're just going to look at these uh, difficult verses that talk about prophets and apostles and, and angels. Um, this section is very relevant. And here's, here's the deal. This, this was my overview of chapter 1 that I suggested to you at the beginning. We're going to go further into the letter later, but just chunks at a time. Uh, over four weeks, we're thinking about living hope, joyful love. We're going to look at evidence, which is what we're going to do today. And then we're going to move on to think about action. And uh, more about that next week. What, what do I, why, why have I kind of split this chapter up this way? Well, I, I think this section about evidence is very important. Because, and I think you'll agree with me, a lot of our modern culture is based, isn't it, on emotion, feelings, experience. Often the standard that we set for whether something is right or wrong is whether it feels good. If it feels good, it must be right. Therefore it is right, so just get on with it. And um, I think this assumption is so entrenched in our culture that we almost don't realise that that's the way that we think sometimes. I think in the first two headings here, Peter is seeking to describe these first century Christian believers in Jesus Christ. He's trying to remind them of the greatness of the salvation that they know. He's trying to remind them of the astonishing things that have happened to them. What God has done for them through Jesus in history. And to remind them of the new position that they're in, the new status they have. They've been born into a new living hope. They have a new perspective. They're new people now. So he's talking to them about things that they will experience and feel as a result of that. Living hope and a joyful love. What does he say in verse 8? We looked at it last week if you missed it. Though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, you love him. That we, we were saying last week, that's so alien to our culture, isn't it? Seeing is believing. These Christians have never seen Jesus any more than you've seen Jesus with your eyes and yet they'd seen him with the eyes of faith and they loved him and admired him worshipped him and the result of that was that their hearts were filled with this indescribable joy my point is these first two headings are all about things that are going on inside aren't they these are inner experiences and the problem is uh, this, this is the deal you could talk if you're a Christian, you could talk to one of your friends and say, do you know what, I know this living hope and I have this joyful sense of love for Jesus in my heart and I think they might say to you, that's really nice for you. It's nice for you. It's not for me though. I think most people wouldn't condemn you for having faith but they would think, you found your thing, I've got my things, it's good for us to kind of get along. It's nice for you. It's inner. 
this is your hope, this is your love. If you want to believe in that stuff, that's fine. But it isn't really for me. I think a lot of people think that Christianity is based on myths, legends, fairy tales. And Peter here is speaking as an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus and he recognises and reminds them of the inner experiences that they've endured subjectively but he wants to ground that in external evidence that is objective and grounded in history and Mark what I want to suggest to you this morning is that you need both you need to know that inner experience of what it means to be born again to be a real Christian to be trusting Jesus in a relationship with God living hope, joyful love but you need to know that that is all grounded not in your heart but in history because of what God has done through Jesus in this world it is subjective and objective and that's why I've split it in this way and we're going to think about some of that evidence not all of it there's a lot of it but Peter just touches on one part of that evidence uh, today I want you to remember too that this is so important for them these, these Christian believers are suffering for their faith. Some of you were very moved in that first week when we described some of the things that were happening to some of them under the emperor, the Roman Emperor Nero. This is a brutal, harsh first century culture. And to name the name of Jesus would cost you. So that clashes, doesn't it, with this idea, if it feels good, it must be right. For these people, Christianity didn't do them any favours. They were suffering. They were struggling. What they need to know is that they've, put, they've staked their lives on something that is solid and reliable. And that's what Peter is trying to remind them of. Yes, this causes you great pain at times. But you are trusting in a real saviour. And all of these experiences are true and real. And even though it costs you, you've been born into this living hope. Well, he crams a lot into this chapter, doesn't he? And um, there's a little clue there in verse 10 to what this next section's about when he says, concerning this salvation. He's really talking about what's happened to them. They, they've, they know salvation. They, they've been saved from sin and death and hell. They've been saved even from themselves and brought into a new relationship with God. This salvation means that they've been given life the very life of Jesus. In that little prologue, Peter tells them that they've been chosen and set apart for this. That even before they were born, in a sense, God had set them apart to have this experience. Look at what it says there in verse 2. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That word sanctify means to be set apart for something noble. God has chosen them and the Spirit has set them apart and brought this message of good news to them. They have a living hope. They have new resources to face the realities that they're facing. They're experiencing the presence of Christ and all the resources and power of Jesus in them. They're realising now that even their trials and difficulties are working for their ultimate good and are not a kind of hopeless, fatalistic, random thing. 
And they also know that God has been working in history to bring all of this about through Jesus for them individually. Just look, we didn't read it, but just look what Peter says a little bit later in the same chapter, verse 20, just over the top of the page there. He's speaking about Jesus, and this is what he says about Jesus. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. What a thing to say, that this has been God's plan all along. Even from before creation, this has been God's plan. That one day Jesus would come for their very sakes and for your very sakes. It's an amazing thing. So, so far from dying while living, as Woody Allen would suggest, this is people who are really living even though they're dying. Because they've come to know God through Jesus. What about the evidence then? Christianity is not just a modern phenomenon. It isn't a fad. It isn't just a radical idea dreamt up by some charismatic leader. It isn't wishful thinking on the part of gullible people who need a crutch to lean on. It isn't just based on good emotional experiences or feelings, as positive as they might be. It is grounded in the greatest reality. It is God's work grounded in history timeless and objective and even though people might suggest that Christianity is based on myths and fairy tales nothing could be further from the truth as I hope we'll see in part today Peter here speaks then of three things prophets apostles And we're just going to touch on that very intriguing comment that Peter makes at the end about angels as well. Even angels long to look into these things. Prophets were men who lived in a time before Jesus was born and they were inspired by God to foretell what would happen when Jesus came into the world. We're going to think about them. Apostles are really men like Peter himself. Look at how he introduced himself at the top of the page. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle is a special person who is an eyewitness of Jesus and his resurrection. And these men were specially commissioned by Jesus himself to declare what they had seen so that other people could believe this great message of good news. In these verses, it's amazing actually that the Spirit of God is referred to, the Holy Spirit is referred to uh, in both the prophets and the apostles. In verse 11, Peter says that these prophets are trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ was pointing. It was God, the Holy Spirit, who inspired them to be able to predict what was going to happen when Jesus came. But the apostles too preached the gospel to them. How? By the Holy Spirit. So you've got prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, and the same Spirit is inspiring both of them to deliver the same message coherently. That is a very powerful piece of evidence. And that's what we're really going to think about uh, today uh, as we go through verses 10 to 12. So what about these prophets? Um, 
we, we have to understand that God has prepared in history for Jesus to be born into this world, the Son of God to come into the world, to be born as a human being, God incarnate. He's prepared for that by taking hold of a nation, the Israelite nation, the Jews. And uh, they're a real country. In fact, God actually dealt with them before they even became a nation. As the Bible teaches, Abraham was the first who God called and made many promises to him, then Isaac and Jacob, and then 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. And they lived uh, in, in the land that was Canaan, that they took over. And, and many years later, Jesus was born in that very place. So God is at work in history. This is verifiable history. And in the Old Testament, God is working through this nation, through different characters who are part of this kind of cultural, national identity of the Jews. Let me just illustrate the opposite of this to help you. I put a picture up there. Anyone know who this is? I wouldn't expect you to particularly, but maybe you do. This is a picture of a man called Joseph Smith. And uh, he is the founder of a cult that we now know as the Mormon uh, organization or cult. Joseph Smith claimed that an angel named Moroni appeared to him in 1823 and revealed to him the location of a buried book of golden plates that had strange writing on as well as other things as well and they were hidden in a hill near his home he went to try and find them and he says the angel supernaturally wouldn't let him find them and it wasn't until four years later that he went again with his wife and managed to find these golden plates he translated them by putting a special stone into the bottom of his top hat and looking into the hat excluding all the light and the translation of what was on these golden plates appeared on the stone and he dictated it to people who wrote it down. He, was the, the, he claimed that the angel told him that he couldn't show anyone else the golden plates. It's quite convenient. And uh, nobody else could look into his top hat and see what this stone said. One man with his own revelation and the translation of the Book of Mormon still in existence today there are apparently 14 million people in the world today who follow various kinds of Mormonism. I want to show you that it's not like that with the Bible. That is a myth and a legend. One man in private, strange ideas. I don't want to be unkind to Mormons, but that is very bizarre. In the Bible, we have a country, the Jewish people, and these prophets, in, in, in the Bible, you can look in the context page of the Bible and you can count 17 different books written by 17 different prophets. Well, maybe less than that because two of them were written by the same guy, Jeremiah and Lamentations, so 16 prophets. There are other prophets referred to in some of the other narrative books. These men lived spanning hundreds of years. Some of them graced the courts of kings. Some of them, like Amos, that's a book in the Bible, was a shepherd humble man and all of these prophetic men 
all spoke into their culture in the time that they lived. Some of them overlapped, some of them didn't, spanning hundreds of years. Not one man with a bunch of golden plates, but lots and lots of different men speaking into the culture of a real country in history. They all said different things. They were speaking into their time and were dealing with different issues. But they were inspired by God and all the things that they said appear to us now to have had a double end in view because as they speak into their own culture they're not just speaking about things that are happening there and then but they're also foretelling what would happen when Jesus comes into the world later. I want to say to you this is an incredible gift that God has given to us for the encouragement of our faith in Jesus that our faith doesn't just depend on subjective inward experiences or the bizarre revelations that one man received, but it's grounded in verifiable history. I want you to notice too that Peter adds here for us that these prophets, although they were intelligent and they wrote down and spoke what God told them to say and speak and write, they didn't fully understand how what they were saying could possibly be fulfilled one day. It's like they're straining their eyes to see through the fog into the future and they're saying what God wants them to say but they're wondering all the while what on earth is this pointing to? How is this going to be fulfilled? How is this all going to hang together? And they couldn't see beforehand how that was going to be fulfilled. I don't know why, but this makes me think of a magician doing card tricks. I don't know if this is a good illustration, but I'll say it anyway for what it's worth. Imagine I was a magician and I said to you, I've got a deck of cards here, I've picked a card and I know what it is. I'm going to put it in my top pocket. And I gave all of you another deck of cards and I said to you, I want you to pick the card that matches the one that's in my top pocket. How many people do you think would get that right? Probably none. Maybe luckily one. What, what Peter's saying here is these prophets didn't know what they were saying was referring to in the future. God does. And yet every one of them, even though they wrote over hundreds of years on all sorts of different topics, were all speaking with one voice about the same truths yet to happen at least 500 years later. That's incredible, isn't it? You won't hear that on BBC One or ITV or Sky News because the media likes to propagate this myth that Christians are stupid. But this is powerful evidence and it needs serious thought to kind of get to grips with it. Let's um, just look at the uh, specific things that Peter says. So if you've got your finger in the page there, verses 10 to 12, I want to speak about three things. The prophets spoke about three things. Let me show you them first and then we'll go through them one by one. In verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, that's the first thing they talked about, grace that was to come to you. They also tried to find the time and circumstances, verse 11, to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. So grace that was to come to you, the fact that the Messiah would suffer when he came, 
And the third thing at the end of verse 11 is that they spoke about glories that would follow. You see that? Three things. Grace to come to you, a suffering Messiah, and glory to follow. That's the three themes that the prophets engaged with. So let's have a look at this very quickly. First one, grace to come to you. We just sang Amazing Grace. It's not what you do when you have your tea and you say grace. It's not what ballet dancers do. Move with great grace. This word grace is a great Bible word. And the idea behind this word grace is the idea of undeserved kindness. God is surprisingly and amazingly and extravagantly generous to sinful, broken, failing people. The idea behind the word grace is God not treating us as we deserve to be treated. He doesn't have to be like that, but he is like that. Nobody forces him to be like that. It is all of his own free nature. God is a gracious and a kind God. And rather than obliterating this broken, fallen, sinful world, God prefers to be at work within it. And his business is being gracious to people who don't deserve it. That's the message of the Bible. The key thing here for Peter as a Jewish man, don't forget he's a Jew as well, is who is this grace for? This is what the prophets were engaging with. Is it just for Jewish people? Because after all, the prophets were Jewish. Peter's a Jew. The Old Testament scriptures are for the Jews. Is this just for Jewish people? And if you're not a Jew, you're outside of this grace and kindness from God. Well, the answer to that is no, isn't it? If, if you make your notes, here's a couple of references for you. Uh, there's another letter in the Bible, Titus in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 11. Paul speaks there of the grace of God that appeared bringing salvation to all men, not just Jewish people. And we could go to Ephesians chapter 3. I can't remember this one off by heart. Off by heart. Ephesians chapter 3. This is what Paul says. He's another apostle like Peter. He says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, are heirs together of one heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ. In other words, it was revealed to these apostles that these prophetic words about grace to come to people was not confined to one people group, but was global. That was an incredible thing that the prophets predicted that, that when Jesus came into the world, he would come into the world not just for Jewish people, but for all men, every tribe, language and people type. The good news about Jesus transcends national boundaries, cultural boundaries. And it reaches across history and across geography 
and it's for all men. That means that it's for you in Rotherham in 2010. That's good, isn't it? Peter struggled with this. As a Jewish man, he knew his own people were specially favoured by God. And he too had this inbred sense of exclusivity. We're the people of God. Everyone else isn't. We look down on them a bit. We're special. They're not. Don't talk to them. Barriers. Exclusivity. And God had to work very powerfully in Peter to remove that sense of prejudice and to deal with this narrow attitude. And here Peter, 30 years later, is writing, who to? Jews? No. Mainly non-Jews. And telling them what God has done for them in their lives. So he's got it, hasn't he? The gospel is global. The prophet Isaiah, in the Old Testament, writing or speaking 600 years before Jesus, wrote this. This is God speaking through him. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. You can go through the Old Testament prophets and verses like that are there time and time again that when the Messiah would come it would be a light for all men and women all over the world. Do you remember that dear old guy Simeon? Sometimes we talk about this at Christmas. When Jesus was born Mary and Joseph were only poor and they went to the temple to have him circumcised in Jerusalem. There's a man there called Simeon, a very old man. There's a lady as well called Anna. And both of them were waiting for this. They, they knew the Old Testament and they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And God seems to have opened Simeon's eyes. And as he takes the baby Jesus, eight days old, in his arms, you can read it in Luke chapter 2. He, t- he says, this child is a light for the nations. And he says other things about Jesus as well. And other things to Mary about how it would pierce her heart with grief one day and she would be there and see him crucified he was a kind of prophet Simeon but this idea that Jesus is a light for all what should this mean to you well we've said it already haven't we it means that God's promises through the prophets in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament are not for one exclusive people group but they're for you they're for all. That means there is no barrier preventing you from coming to God through Jesus. There is an open door. All of these promises, the whole of the Bible, it's for you. You can believe it and you can walk through that open door and no one can stop you. No one can say you're not a Jew, you don't wear the right clothes. You, you can walk through that door because the Bible and these promises, Jesus is for you. So that's the first thing the prophet spoke about, grace to come to you. The second thing that he spoke about was this amazing idea that this Messiah would suffer. What's that all about? This is a massive deal. There are many passages in the prophets in the Old Testament that speak of great victory, of a strong, powerful eternal wise ruler would come like a king conquering all his enemies 
And then Jesus comes and he's born in Nazareth. The son of a carpenter. Poor. Obscure. It's like the Messiah being born in like Barnsley or Rotherham. You'd think he would live in a palace in London. That's why the Jewish leaders had so much of an issue. How can you be the Messiah? But it's more than that, isn't it? What must it have been for them when Jesus was lifted up to die on a cross like a criminal? And these religious leaders in their fine clothes walking past the cross and shouting up at Jesus, you called yourself the Christ? Come down off the cross and then we'll believe in you. How can you be the Messiah when you're dying? They didn't know their own Bibles. The prophets who spoke these things in the Old Testament longed to know how on earth this could be brought to pass. A great king and a suffering servant, we just can't fit that together. And you can't until Jesus comes on the scene and marries all of those ideas in one person. Just go back with me to the prophet Isaiah again. We're not going to cover the whole of the Old Testament, but here's a couple of things I want to show you. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53. This is in the Jewish Old Testament scriptures. These religious leaders would have known these words off by heart. And what does it say about... This is Isaiah writing into his own time, but predicting Christ. Look at what it says in verse 4 of Isaiah 53, page 740 of you got a church Bible. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why did the Messiah have to suffer? He suffered in the place of sinful broken people paying the penalty for sins that we, did, we really should pay. Jesus was put to grief not because he was the bad guy but because he said, here am I, send me. I'll take the rap so that they can be forgiven. And it's amazing this chapter. Look at what it says. It says he didn't speak when he stood in front of Pilate and Herod. It says in the Gospels that he wouldn't answer their questions. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. There was a man called Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who gave his family tomb for Jesus to be buried in. It's right there in the Old Testament, 600 years before Jesus was even born. Just flip back with me to a psalm, Psalm 22. We could go all over the place, we haven't got time. Psalm 22, a few pages further back. Page 554 in the Church Bibles. These are the words of David. king under great pressure this is how he feels in his emotions 
but it's got a double meaning. And look at what he says from verse 12. He's speaking about himself, but you tell me what this reminds you of. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, my bones are all out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's head. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. And get this verse. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. What are we told when Jesus was crucified? The soldiers threw dice and to make, so they could win the cloth, the purple cloth that he was wearing. It's right there. A thousand years before Jesus was born in the Old Testament predicted. And it wasn't people who were trying to make this come true that did it. It was Roman soldiers, callous men who were just doing their thing. And yet there it is, predicted. We could go all through the Old Testament. The Messiah was born to die. It's all there. They knew it. They knew these words off by heart. So, the prophet's themes. Grace to come to you. And a Messiah who would be born one day, who is a great king, yes, but would suffer so that that grace could be delivered to you. They're big themes, aren't they? Over hundreds of years in the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus. The third thing we said very quickly was, the prophet spoke, Peter tells us, of glory to follow. God has this salvation that is for all people. It comes through the suffering of Jesus, the resurrection, and the result of this would be glory to follow. Many passages in the Old Testament speak of this future time. Some of them are speaking of the experience of salvation in this present broken world, but many of them are pointing towards heaven and the living hope that Christian believers have because of Jesus. When Jesus did come into the world, he said to his disciples, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. So there's three specific ideas here that for hundreds of years were laid down in a nation's history through these prophetic men. God's grace is for all. The Messiah will suffer. And there is a glory to come as a result of what Jesus the Messiah achieves. The prophets couldn't see clearly how this was going to be fulfilled. They were straining to catch a glimpse of it. But when Jesus comes into the world, he is the perfect fulfilment of everything that's been said before. Remind you that verse later on in the chapter, verse 20 and 21, where Peter says that Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. None of this is an afterthought or a mismatch, it isn't a plan B. It's not been cobbled together like a coalition government. It's, um, this is God's plan from the beginning. Actually, no, from before the beginning. He meant to do things this way and he has achieved everything he set out to achieve. 
Right, Peter moves on to speak about apostles. And uh, he says that they too were inspired by the Spirit of God not to predict these things, but to explain them and proclaim them and to preach them. And um, this is a very important uh, link, isn't it, that Peter makes between the prophets of the Old Testament and these special man apostles in the New Testament. These apostles were eyewitnesses, as we've said. And you can't underestimate the role that Jesus plays in this. Jesus said to his disciples right at the very end of Luke's Gospel that all of these Old Testament scriptures, they're all about him. And he says to them, this is how it must be. The the Messiah had to suffer and die and to be raised alive so that the Gospel could be preached to all nations. And you can read that in Luke 24. The disciples were very slow to understand and make that connection. As I'm sure we would have been. But Jesus has to make that link and spell it out for them. How it all fits together. And Peter is seeking to remind these people and encourage them of the fact that they are part of the same story. And so are you. It's the same story. These apostles are not just making this up but have been sent by Jesus himself to declare what the prophets foretold and what Jesus has achieved. All of this is from God and all of this is for you. Just just a little aside here, if we can, and before we close. Peter here is agreeing with the Apostle Paul There's a couple of amazing references in 2 Corinthians, another letter that Paul wrote. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4.15, all of this is for your benefit. But in 2 Corinthians 5, a little bit later on in verse 18, he says, all of this is from God. I think I had it here. Here it is. This is what Peter's trying to say to them. All of this is from God and all of this it's for you. That's what he's trying to say to them, isn't it? You are part of this story. God has done it and he's done it for you. Individually and corporately. The prophets foretold it. Jesus fulfills it. The apostles declare it. Let's, um, you know I love to think in pictures. So here's my little overview of this. Here's, here's history. Beginning to end like an umbrella, the umbrella of history. And God is the sovereign king, the creator over all of that history. And here's you and me, Rotherham, 2010. I don't know how near to the end of that history we are, but there, there you are. I'm sorry I've not got a skate on, because most of you are ladies, but generic human being. I'm including you all in that. How do you fit into this story? Well, let me show you. Here's the prophets. In the Old Testament... Many different men over hundreds of years, they foretold what was going to happen when Jesus comes into the world. You've got that? Jesus then is born exactly the right time in exactly the right place and he fulfills all of those prophecies in a way that they could not see before it happened. And then the apostles who saw these things, Jesus sends them out to preach it. This is a picture of a statue in St. Peter's Square in Rome of the Apostle Peter preaching. 
And he's got the keys of the kingdom of heaven in his right hand, as Jesus said to him in the Gospels. Peter is writing to these dear Christian believers who are struggling and suffering because of their faith. And he's saying to them, the prophets predicted it. Jesus fulfills it. We have declared it to you. In the power of God's spirit, you are part of this story. Did you get that? It's an incredible reality. No wonder Peter says at the end of this section, even angels long to look into these things. I couldn't think of a graphic to put, because I don't know what angels look like, to look down over this. Can you imagine angels on tiptoes, on the very edge of heaven, metaphorically speaking, looking at God's unfolding purposes in this world and scratching their heads and thinking, what on earth is God doing? What on earth is God doing? The prophets couldn't quite see it. The angels couldn't quite grasp it. Even angels along to look into it. Do you know what? It isn't for them, primarily. It's for humans. For you. Broken, fallen, failing people. And as the angels look on and see what God has done in history, prophets, Jesus, the apostles, they can only stand back and marvel as God is unfolding his glory in his broken world. These people are struggling, as we said, and Peter is wanting to encourage their hearts and help them to remember who they really are. Well, we're going to close and I want to give you a couple of challenges as we close. How can we respond to this? Well, some of you, I know that you are like these people that Peter's writing to. You have a faith in Jesus Christ. You believe us. And I want to remind you, if Peter was here, he would want to remind you of who you are. The salvation that is now yours through Jesus. What an incredible privilege to know this living hope. Some of you, I know, perhaps from time to time, forget those things. Difficulties overwhelm you. Life seems so hard. Perplexing things. And, and it grinds you and you begin to lose perspective. And instead of remembering who you are, your vision is taken up with other things. And maybe sometimes it's tempting, isn't it, to give up hope of ever finding a way through problems and difficulties. Listen, all of this is from God and all of this is for you. You can face reality in the power that God supplies through Jesus who is a great saviour and a spirit who indwells you and helps you to face those realities. So if you're a Christian believer this morning, I want to encourage you to remember who you are and to live it. We're going to talk about action next week, so we'll come on to that. But some of you, I don't know where you stand with Jesus. I know you like the church because you wouldn't come otherwise. <laughs> but do you really know Jesus in the way that we've been talking about this morning? I want to just briefly take you back 30 years before this letter was written 
and a much younger Peter I'm not getting any younger but Peter, much younger Peter stands up in Jerusalem to preach his first sermon what a scary thought people thought they were drunk and Peter stands up and said we're not drunk God's spirit has been poured out let me explain to you what has happened here in Jerusalem this is only six weeks after Jesus was crucified what does he preach? grace for all a suffering saviour and a glory to come you can go back to Acts chapter 2 he even mentions some things that this King David wrote 1,000 years before Jesus and applies them to Jesus and his resurrection. And he ends his sermon by saying, Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What would your response be to that? Whoops. We've missed it all. The Messiah has come and we thought he was somebody else and we crucified him. And they cry out to Peter, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart and be baptised. Your sins will be forgiven and God will welcome you home and he'll give you his spirit to help you. Who's it for? Peter says it's for you and your kids and for every single person who's far away, for everyone that God will call. And Peter says to them, you need to repent. So I want to challenge you, if you don't know Jesus, there's some things that you need to do. Peter says you need to repent. That is to say, you haven't realised who Jesus really is, and you've lived your life as if Jesus was an irrelevance. Peter says you need to turn around and you need to realise who Jesus is and repent and come to the one who can give you life. The second thing I think Peter says is that you, we, we all of us, you need to admit that the reason Jesus came is because you and I need a saviour. That's a big deal for us, isn't it? That's humbling. You need to admit that he has come to save you from your sins you would be lost and condemned if Jesus had decided to stay where he was ask him to forgive you and to come and save you and give you life and make you the person that he wants you to be and that you can be in his power this is salvation. This is what Peter's banging on about here. Faith and love and joy and hope and power can be yours. And it's found in Jesus and his life. And it can be yours now and it can be yours forever. Praise his great name. Well, may we be encouraged and may we be challenged to come to Jesus and recognise who he is. What an amazing couple of verses. I hope that's been helpful to get an overview of the evidence that Peter brings 
to these subjective experiences that Christians know. It's grounded in history. And may we be encouraged by that.